I'm not a very large human. <laughs> I'm five foot seven. And when I got it to the surface, I realized how massive this fish is. And now I need to try to grab it by the gills. Um, <laughs> it, it was, I mean, the fish is bigger than me. It was an inch longer than me and 10 inches wider than me. Um, so I grabbed it by the tail first. Cause typically with pelagics, I'll grab the tail and then he'll grab the gills. But when I grabbed the tail, I couldn't hold it with one hand. I had to use both my hands to hold it. And then I'm like, well, crap, what if this fish decides to take off again? Now I'm holding its tail and Wahoo have razor sharp teeth and they have razor sharp spines on their, on their back, on their dorsal. And now I have this massive fish that's bigger than me, potentially could try to take another run. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. A hot drink can become cool in two primary ways, through conduction and convection. Conduction occurs when two objects touch each other. Imagine holding a piece of ice. Before long, your fingers are cold and the ice begins to melt. That's conduction. Convection occurs when a gas or liquid moves from being different temperatures. When you heat water over a stove, the warm water moves up and the cool water moves down. That's what you're seeing when water boils, and that's convection. A stainless vacuum bottle prevents conduction from occurring by creating a void between the walls of the bottle, thermos, or cup and the outside air. It prevents convection by keeping all the liquid inside at the same temperature. That's how a Stanley product keeps your cold drink cold and your hot drink hot. And they've been doing it for 110 years. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Stanley 1913, and you can check out their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com. This is definitely the first time on the show that I've got to have a conversation with somebody using uh, Wi-Fi in the Bahamas uh, from a sailboat to talk to me. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, I hope it I hope it holds up. It's not always <laughs> <laughs> If it doesn't, people are just going to have to cut us a little bit of slack, but yeah, please uh please introduce yourself briefly and then uh we'll get to talking about what makes you so special. <laughs> sure, my name is Steph Schultz. I grew up in Florida and kind of did the typical American thing, worked my way up the corporate ladder. And then one day I just kind of said, you know what, forget this. I want to go live on the ocean. And so I decided to sell my belongings, buy a sailing catamaran, get my captain's license and sail over to the Bahamas to uh, teach freediving and spearfishing. And uh, three years later, I'm still here doing it. So it's, it's working out all right. That is amazing. Um, some of the most inspirational people that I've ever met in my life are people who have done what you have done. And there's not very many of you, but people who, who punch out and, and decide to fill, fill that need in their life for, for adventure and for travel and, and simplicity and everything that, that comes with that. Not that adventure is always good or that, uh, that it's always simple, but you're really doing it and, and living life on your own terms. And I think that's, that's admirable to say the least. Thanks. I appreciate that. When did you get into freediving? 
I started freediving about six years ago. I, well, actually I had been freediving pretty much my whole life. I just didn't know it was called freediving. I just thought it was snorkeling. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, growing up in Florida, I would go off the beach and I'd go with friends to try to grab a couple lobster during lobster season. And then my brother-in-law this was about five or six years ago my brother-in-law was extremely good at holding his breath and diving down and grabbing lobsters and I'm just slightly competitive so I said you know what screw this it's not fair that he can get so many more lobsters than me so I decided to sign up for my first free diving course and I did okay nothing amazing I passed the course uh, but then some of my friends signed me up for a deep free diving course just to see how deep you can go and really do some advanced techniques And after three days, I was diving past 100 feet. I was holding my breath for four and a half minutes. And it was like a light was switched on. And it became my passion and my addiction. And so I started free diving a lot. And that's when I was invited on my first spearfishing trip. And so my focus quickly shifted from free diving to spearfishing with with, uh, harvesting fish as being the, the primary focus anytime I was out diving. Yeah, there's no catch and release when you're spearfishing. Well, that's very true. There's no catch and release, but you also you're only taking what you what you see and what you want to what you want to take. You actually see the school of fish and you're like, "I want that one for dinner." Exactly. Uh, it's it's much more selective and and that's the that's one of the great benefits to it is that you can select not only an individual species but like an individual amongst that group like you're saying. And with with rod and reel angling, you don't get that. It, it's kind of pin the tail on the donkey. And the the reality is that a lot of fish, even if you do practice catch and release, die because they're exhausted and fatigued so much from the fight. And yeah, there's there's some very real arguments to be made against catch and release for that, and some strong arguments to be made for spear fishermen opposing it. Yeah, absolutely. I think spear fishermen end up getting a lot of a lot of negative publicity because we're out there um, murdering fish. And I think that it's not intended by so many people. I think it's a lack of education and a lack of understanding of what spearfishing actually is and what's involved in it. And when you're doing it the right way and you're following seasons and bag limits, it is truly the most sustainable way to selectively source seafood. So if, if more people were spearfishing and less people were long netting and, and just regular fishing, we would have a lot more fish species on this planet. Yeah. And, and I don't want to, you know, throw shade at, at the sustainable um, commercial anglers out there or rod and reel or anything like that. I just want people to understand what spearfishing is. And that's why I'm talking to you about it because although I've dabbled in spearfishing for like 20 years, I'm not even good enough to call myself a novice. I'm I'm a, a tourist um, and it's <laughs> embarrassing, but it is my very favorite thing to do that I'm bad at. And it, I get a little bit better every time. I was just uh, spearfishing in Mexico a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, I sort of had a breakthrough moment for myself where I was able to get below 15 feet. You know, I was able to get in water where I was having to clear my ears and you know troubleshoot problems and get to the bottom and hang out for a second without panicking and uh like i want more of that i want it so bad and i need to understand this world more i live in a cold inland climate 
I'm away from the saltwater, but there's still spearfishing opportunities here. And there are some very good ones. And I want to, uh, I want to capitalize on that. In the Bahamas, my understanding is that you cannot use a spear gun or anything that has a trigger mechanism. Is that correct? That's correct. We're limited to Hawaiian sling and full spear. So everything, nothing can have a trigger mechanism. It all has to be band operated. So just a, a band at the back. And that's the only thing you can use. And there is no scuba diving here either. So everything has to be free diving, uh, your own breath hold, and then either the Hawaiian sling or the full spear. But there's a lot of places to fish there, seemingly, that are maybe 40 or 50 feet deep. So it's not it's not impossible to get down to the bottom where a lot of the fish are. Oh, yeah. In many places in the Bahamas, you can get big fish and lobster in 10 feet of water. Uh, the Bahamas is a very strong fishery. Uh, there's abundance of species here. And I actually love the fact that they limit it to free diving only and no trigger mechanisms because if you put a gun in some people's hands and allow them to come to the Bahamas, it wouldn't be quite as abundant as it is now. I really love that they limit it and are really protective over uh, the, the fishery here. Yeah. Now the, the pole spear that you use is also my favorite pole spear, even though, like I said, I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> but that headhunter nomad is a tremendous tool. It is. Yeah. It, it, I've used, pretty much every pool spear on the market, maybe not every single one, but most of them. And what's, uh, what I love about the, the headhunter pool spear is it's so versatile, like the, what we're going to get to, but the, the same day I shot a big lobster, probably a five pound lobster. And then I went out to the blue water and shot a Wahoo with the same exact pool spear. Uh, and, and it held up, it's held up to big groupers, big pelagics and, and reef as well. It's, it's light, it's carbon fiber. And uh, the owner of Headhunter, Brad and, and Mike, they just, they problem shoot, they test, they research. I mean, they're just, in my opinion, top of the line. Yeah. Okay. We're going to get to the story that I want to hear in just a second. Um, but because most of this audience is is more familiar with big game hunting than with spearfishing, I want to set up some analogies. You can think of a spear gun, like a banded spear gun that has a trigger mechanism more along the lines of, of a compound bow um, or, or even a crossbow for that matter. There's actually a lot of similarities between a spear gun and a crossbow. If you're talking about a Hawaiian sling, that's more like a, like a hybrid between a, a spear gun and a, and a slingshot or, or a wrist rocket. And then a pole spear, the bands are connected to the back of the spear. You run your hand through the band and then you, you draw the spear back to create tension. Some of them have rollers, some of them do not. And uh, in your distance is, I don't know, three three quarters of the length of, of the spear um, or, or something close to that. So if you have a nine foot spear, say you can shoot a fish six or seven feet away. Um, if you have a really good one, like a headhunter nomad with rollers, then it's probably closer to that actual nine foot mark. Would you agree with most of what I said? Yeah, all of it. Okay. Wow. I'm doing good today. Yeah, you're doing great. That was a great <laughs> analogy. I've done some hunting myself and I've used all of the things that you just described and it's an, a perfect analogy. Cool. Okay. So the the producer and editor of this show, uh, Emily Bratcher has, I think three, uh, fly fishing world records. So 
a lot of what she has to listen to as she's editing these things aren't aren't things that she's super interested in. Bless her heart. Um, but <laughs> I feel like your Wahoo story is something that uh, is going to at least hold her attention, if if not the, you know, the other thousands of people that listen to this. So uh, tell me a fish story. <laughs> well, I'll tell you the fish story about the best day of spearfishing in my life. Um, I mean, I have a lot of fish stories. I've, I've been spearfishing for almost six years, and that doesn't seem like a long time. You mentioned that you've been spearfishing for 20 years. Um, and I think the reason why I'm here today is because when I started spearfishing, I, I became addicted to it to the point that I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I wanted to get as good as possible, as quickly as possible. So one January, I made the new year's resolution of, of traveling to a different country every month spearfishing. And I did that. So I traveled all over the world, uh, spearfishing with some of the best guides in the world, just learning how to hunt different species and hunt species all over the world using different techniques. And I started out with a spear gun. And so I had a roller spear gun and really enjoyed that. But I had done my first spearfishing trip in the Bahamas and I used a pole spear and I loved the simplicity of the pole spear. I think that's kind of a repetitive theme in my life, just like simplicity. And so I was always going back to that pole spear. So I actually got my first world record when I was in Costa Rica on a spearfishing trip. I just happened to bring my pole spear and uh, we got into a huge school of mahi and I wanted to shoot my pole spear, not a gun. I was tired of um, loading my gun. I was tired of the fact of just being able to shoot them. I wanted to hunt the fish. I wanted to feel like the fish was coming towards me when I shot it. I wasn't just chasing after it, throwing a Hail Mary and getting a shot because I have such a, a far distance. I wanted the fish to come to me and uh, got the first record in, in Costa Rica and I'm not really, I don't consider myself a trophy hunter at all. That's not what I'm going for. I definitely don't need the recognition for anything, but I just realized that so few women are in this sport and I wanted, and there was no record for women for pole spear, uh, mahi on pole spear. It didn't exist. And in my mind, I was like, how does this not exist? How are there 200 record, records for men and 20 records for women? This is not okay. Uh, so more so, I just wanted to start setting records records to encourage other women to come get involved in this sport and try to beat those records so that they can be out in the ocean having these experiences. So anyway, long story short, that led me to where I am today. Um, on my sailboat in the Bahamas, I've been here for three years and I spearfish almost every single day. I would say in seven a seven day week, I am in the water spearfishing five days a week. Um, and I currently hold seven world records right now. Um, and for me, Wahoo has always been the pinnacle. That's been kind of the, the top fish. That's like people get buck fever in hunting. People get Wahoo fever in spear fishing. They're just so challenging to hunt. Uh, it's hard to close the gap even on a spear gun and get close enough for a shot. And then when you do get the shot, they run like crazy and they have such soft flesh that they rip out of the shot. I mean, they can really rip themselves in half they run so hard so prepping your gear so you have the right gear getting a good shot and then landing like the shot is only half of it and then landing the fish is the other half so they've always been like I said the pinnacle for me so I really started focusing on getting a wahoo on pole spear pole spear is what I love that's what I have my records on and I said why can't 
why can't you get walking on pole spear? Like if you get a walk on a pole spear, you have really perfected the hunt <laughs> of hunting these big pelagic fish. I mean, they're coming into you. Like you said, you have about a six foot distance to get the shot. So I made that my focus. I started focusing on trying to hunt walk on pole spear. And I did that for about three years unsuccessfully. I got one tail shot on a fish in three years and it ripped out when it ran. Um, and then recently I just went to Fiji to visit my boyfriend. He was working over there and I landed my first waffle and pole spear. It was a little under 27 pounds. I did a top down shot, got it in the boat and I was really excited. Uh, but then I wanted to go for the bigger, one, <laughs> the bigger one. I know that Wahoo can get so much bigger than that. Even though a 27 pound Wahoo on a pole spear is respectable. Uh, I wanted to go for something bigger. So the story, the fish story I'm going to tell you is uh, my local Bahamian friend invited us, my boyfriend and I, to sail over to a remote island in the Bahamas, uh, an island that people don't jump in the water here. Really notorious for having a lot of sharks, oceanic white tips, tiger sharks, lemon sharks, reef sharks. I mean, the waters are crawling with them and the fishermen are landing less than 50% of their fish because of the sharks. But he said, hey, come on over. You like sharks. <laughs> so come on over and uh, see what you can do here. There, there's the biggest wahoo in the world. And he's caught wahoo here over 100 pounds. And so for me, that was that invitation was something I couldn't pass up. So we sailed over here, dropped anchor, invited Jeremy over, talked about a game plan. And he'd already been here a week. He's like, I want to go to land and go explore. And my boyfriend, Cole, was like, absolutely not. The weather is going to be perfect. Let's go out spearfishing. So this is day one in this new location. Never been here before. Don't know the area at all. I mean, we can look at a map. And when you're hunting for Wahoo, you're looking for little pinnacles. You're looking for drop-offs. And so we had an idea that there were some really good spots around here for Wahoo. Jeremy was familiar with the area. Um, but we didn't really know what we were getting into. So we planned on being in this island for over a month just to spend some time spearfishing, try to get a big fish. And day one, we decided to go out and just scout, like do a scouting mission. Um, hunting, people do that a lot too. You go out and you just look for tracks, look for signs of life, try to see if you see anything, kind of set up your strategy. And that's what we wanted to do. So we went out and we went to the shallows, grabbed a cup of conch, um, went to the deep reef. My boyfriend shot a nice yellow wing grouper, which is a delicious fish. So Jeremy's stoked. We have conch, we have, we have grouper and he's like, okay, now we need some lobster. Cause I want to make Bahamian lobster minced lobster. So we went into the shallows, literally he dropped us right on a spot. So we have three lobsters all over five pounds. Um, and for anybody, that's a great day of spear fishing. So now we have conch, lobster and uh almost a 30 pound yellow wing grouper and for people in spearfishing that's just absolutely incredible and uh yeah so then i was like well it's been a couple hours like it's not even one o'clock in the afternoon and why don't we go out and set up for a blue water drift okay so blue water drift when you're when you're spearfishing there's there's always almost always going to be some current um so you can't just necessarily jump in the water with your boat at anchor and then expect to be able to get back to it you might not be able to yeah so what what does a drift mean right so uh jeremy our friend jeremy runs um runs a charter here he has he likes to go on the go fast boats so he's always on these big like fountains and freemans and he runs the the old uh, wicked tuna 
boat, the tuna.com. So he runs that for charters and we convinced him to come on my boat. So to see a go fast guy driving a sailboat is pretty, pretty funny. I don't think he expected us to have such a great day of spear fishing. That's just not, <laughs> that's not what he had in his brain, but here he is. So he's driving my sailing catamaran. Um, which cruises at like seven knots <laughs> and Ooh, blow your hair back on that. <laughs> and he sets us up. So the first drift when you're in blue water is just figuring out the drift. So the wind could be going one way and the current could go be going the other way. So the boat's going this way and you're going the opposite direction when you're in the water and you want to always be up current from the pinnacle so that you're drifting back over the front side of the pinnacle. Cause that's where the pelagics uh, are going to wait for the bait to come across. So you don't want to be on the backside of that. So there's a lot of strategy involved in it and timing um, where we are is very tidal. So you, if you can get the change in tide, that's really key to finding these fish as well. So Jeremy set us up. Well, actually we went out to blue water, we're gearing up. And when I say gear up, it's the same pole spear that we've been using in the shallows, but this time we attach uh, a float line. So a 40 meter line, just like a rope uh, with a bullet float at the end. So it's a one atmosphere, um, little inflatable orange float. It's like a, like a bobber on steroids, basically. And what, you, what is, what, sorry, what does one atmosphere mean? Uh, so it'll, after one atmosphere, that's when it collapses. So going down one atmosphere, that's 33 feet. So after 33 feet, it's going to collapse. Okay. Yeah. And why would you want it to be able to collapse? Right. Well, you don't want it to collapse, but the key here with Wahoo is you want a float that's going to have minimal drag. So you want a, the smallest float you can, but also you, you want to have a float attached so that you don't lose your gear. Cause when you're pull spearing, you load up your spear, you shoot the fish, there's a slip tip. So the, the shot goes into the fish and then this little metal head toggles and gets stuck on the other side if the shot penetrates. And then your whole setup is attached to the fish as it runs. So now the pool spear and the line and the float are all attached to the fish. And you need that buoy to be strong enough that it's going to provide some resistance, but not too big or um, too much resistance that's going to pull the shot out. And then most people are attaching float lines to the handle or, or grip of a, of a spear gun. Where do you attach the float line on a pool spear? Yeah, so on the pole spear, with the no, Nomad in particular, but any pole spear, you have um, the handle that you put your hand in, um, or some of them have the bungee in the back. So on the Nomad, it's a handle, and it has a little metal shackle that attaches the handle to the band. So we attach our float lines to that metal shackle. Okay, cool. So my setup is that float line. It's 50% um, bungee and 50% static line uh, 40 meters. So a little over a hundred feet and then a little tiny bullet float. Okay. All right. So we got the setup. Did you do your practice drift already? No, we haven't okay. done anything. We haven't done anything yet. We, um, we're just gearing up and I, I looked at my fish finder and I started seeing little boomerangs on my fish finder and I've never marked Wahoo on my catamaran before. <laughs> um, so I was like, hey, is that typically what Wahoo looked like? I've marked fish before, but typically we're doing reef diving. We're not out in the blue marking pelagic fish. And Jeremy was like, oh, no, I don't know what that is. And then all of a sudden the whole screen lit up and we had, we call it a wolf pack. We had a massive school of Wahoo right under the boat right there. 
Wow. So Jeremy was like, yeah, that's, that's what they look like. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we grabbed when we, when we're doing blue water drifting, we also have a flasher. Um, So it's a a little buoy with a mono line that goes down and these reflective fish shaped um, attractors, I guess that are go down the, the mono. And then at the bottom, there's a weight with a little squid looking thing. And that just attracts the fish to come in. And then we have a bag of chum and we slowly chunk the chum. We don't want to create like a slick because we don't want to bring in the sharks. But if you just chunk it into little quarter sized pieces, it's enough to attract the, the target species, the wahoo. That sounds sketchy to me. <laughs> but you're, you're pretty comfortable with sharks. I actually love sharks. While we were drifting, not not this day, but yesterday, um, we had an oceanic and a tiger shark both swim in at the same time. So when I first started spearfishing, I learned in Stewart, Florida. And I the first time I went spearfishing was using a spear gun to shoot cobia off of bull sharks. And I didn't know anything about sharks at the time. And I just was with some friends who a couple of guys and they're like, yeah, this is what we do. And I was like, all right, this is what we do. Totally ignorant to it. Uh, and then after that experience, I said, well, you know, maybe I should learn a thing or two about sharks. <laughs> and I started, uh, I started diving with, uh, scientists and shark divers, people who have a lot of experience, just learning their behaviors, understanding, um, understanding their body, understanding how they, how they eat and how they function scientifically. And it really helped me get a lot of comfort with sharks. I, I have no fear of sharks whatsoever. I have a, a healthy dose of respect for sharks, but I haven't yet lost a fish to one. Wow. That's pretty impressive. I'm sure you will. It's, it's, it's part of the deal. They're called the tax man for a reason, but yeah. Do you think that that being calm and comfortable is, is an important asset when you're diving around sharks? Huge. They a hundred percent can sense your behavior. When a shark comes in my mentality, like the thing that goes through my head, if a shark comes in and I'm chunking chum and um, I'm spearfishing and I have a shark come into our general area. The first thing in my head is like, no, sir, this is my chum. This is my drift. I'm going for a meal. This is not like, this is my space in the ocean right now. And now you're invading it. So I'll actually make eye contact and be pretty dominant against the shark. What I mean by that is I just simply dive towards it. I'll just dive towards it and present my body as big as I can. And, uh, I take my slip tip off. So there's no pokey thing at the end of my pole spear, just the injector rod, which is quite blunt. And if I need to, I can give them a little tap. And typically that does the trick and gets them to, to swim away. Um, and then if there's a shark, like a tiger shark or an oceanic, and I would rather have the experience with the shark than focus on spear fishing, I'll completely drop my pole spear. I'll open my body up. I'll avoid eye contact and I'll actually try to dive with the shark being more passive and then the shark will hang out with me and we can have a moment together. But I think the key here is that I dictate what I want that relationship to be. Okay. So words mean different things for different people. When you say that you're competitive uh, to you, that means that you're going to be aggressive towards a shark while you're throwing chum into the ocean and that's your ocean. So, okay. Noted. That's what competitive means to Steph. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, I'm disciplining my dog. I I treat it very similar. Like I'm going to set the boundaries here and you're not like, I'm the one in charge. You can go swim in another place and get another fish, but this is, this is my area of the ocean right now. (laughs) Okay. All right. So you're, you're starting to chunk up some, uh, some chum 
at this at this stage in the story. All right. Yeah. And you're exactly right. We had somebody on board um, before and he's like, wait, wait, wait. So you jump into blue water. You can't see the bottom. You know, there are sharks all around and you start putting chum in the water to try to bring fish in. Like this sounds crazy. And uh, I guess it does from the outside looking in. But we use a specific type of chum. Um, We're not bleeding a fish in the water. And the number one thing that brings in sharks is the motion. It's the vibration in the water. So it's disturbance in the water. We don't have any sort of disturbance. The sharks come in, there's really no blood, there's no slick line, there's just little chunks, and they'll try to go for a piece. But once you deter them, and you say, Hey, this is my, my chum, you can't have it. They swim away and they don't bother you. And this day we started chunking and a little reef shark came in on the surface, tried to go for some chum and I don't even, I mean, he's right here. I'm honestly breathing up, lowering my heart rate, relaxing, not even paying attention to him because his pectoral fins were up and nice and horizontal. He was moving nice and slow. He was kind of coming in, checking out the chum and leaving. He is zero threat to me whatsoever. So I don't even pay him any attention. Um, So yeah, first thing to show up was the shark. (laughs) Okay. All right. Now keep going. (laughs) So so not paying attention to the shark. And then all of a sudden, a big wahoo swims in. Like a, it's hard to tell in blue water how big a fish is because um, it's, I guess they would be the same as like hunting an elk in the middle of a field. Like there's no trees, there's no rocks, there's nothing to tell you, or there's no other elk in the area. Like you don't know how big it is unless you're looking at its horns. Well, the same thing with a wahoo. You can't really tell how big this fish is until you see the hump on the head or the big belly hanging down. And that's how you know it's a big fish. Typically their nose starts to look less pointed and more rounded. And that's how you know this thing has girth to it. So this guy came in and he was big. He had the rounded nose, started eating a couple of pieces of chum. And I'm in the water with my boyfriend. So the two of us are diving. And in free diving, just like scuba diving, um, you always have a buddy. But in free diving, one person wants to always be at the surface while the other person dives down just to have the safety in case anything were to happen. So we dive really well. One of us will dive, the other person's at the surface. And then once they have their dive and their opportunity, they come up and breathe up. And then when the fish comes in, it's the other person's turn. So we're really not competing over fish. We're not diving as soon as we see the fish. There's no sort of chaos, but the energy is not there at all. It's very slow and calm and relaxed. And we're trying to ignore the fish. And anyway, so I dive, I can't get close enough. Cole dives down, got pretty close, but didn't take a shot. And we're not taking any Hail Mary shots here because if, if you let the fish get comfortable, we're just a, a floating fad at that point. You know, it's just the two of us with the flasher, uh, fish attracting device. We're just up here, just being, being as calm and still as possible. So we both get a couple of drops and a couple more Wahoo come in. Nobody's really hanging out. And then all of a sudden it goes quiet. We're not seeing fish. We're not seeing anything. So Jeremy comes over in the catamaran, picks us up. We jump on the sugar scoops, which are the back steps. And we just sit there and then he resets the drift. So now we know how fast the drift is, what direction the drift is, where we're seeing the fish. We have a lot more information. Um, So he can set us up really strategically on the second drift. Okay. Um, So do you just throw the, throw the flasher in to a set depth and then sort of drift with it, hang out next to the buoy? Yeah, exactly. So we'll set the, the, typically we set the flasher to like 30 or 35 feet of depth. 
And then whoever is going to be the safety at the surface is holding the flasher, just kind of jigging it a little yep. bit, like you could a fishing jig, um, just to create movement so that the sun, because most of these Wahoo are down at 100, 150 feet, that's where they're schooling and chilling. And so we're bringing them up from the depth most of the time. So we want the sun to shine through and create some movement to bring them up. Got it. Makes sense. Yeah. So we reset our second drift and we jumped in the water and all of a sudden one Wahoo swims in and then another and then another. And before we know it, we're surrounded by over 20 Wahoo. The smallest one now that we kind of have some more insight, the smallest one was probably around 40 pounds uh, and they're just surrounding us. And that's something you don't see that often. I mean, massive, massive Wahoo. So I take a dive down, can't close the gap. Cole takes a dive down and he's actually looking at one and one swims up and almost kisses him on the cheek, but he can't turn in time to get it. So he doesn't get a shot. Um, and we didn't pressure them at all. We're not swimming towards them. When I say we do a drop, what that means is we're taking a big breath. We duck into the water. We kick as little as we possibly can. And we try to get down to the same depth as the fish. And then we just don't move. We're literally sitting there as still as we can, not making eye contact, trying not to move. Because with a pole spear, you have to get within five or six feet to get a shot on this fish that's going to penetrate. So there's no, and you, you can't chase down a wahoo. It's not going to happen. So they have to come to you. So a wahoo is one of the fastest fish in the world. They can swim 60 miles an hour, 60 miles an hour. So the fastest land mammal in North America is the pronghorn antelope. And that's like 62 miles an hour. Um, <laughs> fastest land mammal in the world is the cheetah at 66. So to do that through something as dense as water is just mind blowing to me. Yeah, absolutely. It's the pole spears are extremely powerful, but when you're adding the component of a fish that is that thick and that fast, and um, you're trying to puncture all the way through it, it, extremely challenging so the closer the better and you don't have any point of comparison so you don't truly know how close the fish is because you don't have anything to compare it to so there's been plenty of times that you line up and take a shot and it doesn't even hit the fish because the fish is much bigger than you expected and it's so much further away so my general rule is i wait until i can see the movement of the eye of the fish before i let go of my spear my okay. eyesight's not that great. So, so if I can see its eye moving, it's close enough. I can take a shot. That's really helpful. Um, and I'm sure there's people out there that don't understand how hard that range finding aspect is. I have taken 10 shots for every one shot that I've actually hit that the fish was just too far away. And if you've got a flat sandy bottom with, with really no features, or if you're in blue water or whatever, like the fish shape is pretty much all the same. So it's really hard to tell how big something is, how far away it is. And you use the example of an elk in a field. I think a, an almost better example um, might be like a duck or a goose in the sky yeah. Um, yeah. because there, it, it can be really hard to tell whether that's, you know, 55 yards away and really too far to be shooting at or 45 yards away. And with geese, I use the eye as well. I'm going goose hunting tomorrow. So if I can see a goose's eye clearly, then that means it's within, you know, my range of being able to to shoot that goose with a shotgun and 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 do so efficiently and and ethically. Okay. Um I love the eye trick. Thank you. That's going to be 
something that I'm no noting down right now. Well, I'm going to be looking at Fisher's eyes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. See, there's so many similarities between spearfishing and, and hunting. I think it's almost a shame that we call it spearfishing. It's almost more like fish hunting and, yeah. and spear fishermen are, are really good and honest about calling what they're doing hunting. And, and they talk about dives as a hunt and they use a lot of the same elements as, as you would hunting, especially in the West, um, where you're maneuvering around terrain, you know, you're using wind in the same way that you might use current. Uh, there's so many similarities and I'm starting to see more and more people from the hunting community, especially from the archery hunting community, gravitating towards spearfishing, especially in the winter when, uh, when we really would love to be, I don't know, on a sailboat in the Bahamas spearfishing every day. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. So we're setting up for drift number two. Yes. That, and to your point too, with fish in the water, um, water creates something called refraction. So yes. underwater things uh, appear 33% larger and closer. So add that to not having any point of comparison with the blue backdrop, and then you add refraction to it. It's, it's not easy to, to gauge that. So so we jump in for drift two. Now we know how fast we're moving in the direction. We can set up right over the pinnacle, right where we're seeing the fish. And uh, we have the school around us and we both take drops and we're not shooting. We haven't let go of a spear yet. We're just trying to get close enough. Um, and the school disappears. They, they swim away. And Cole and I are at the surface and we're just like, what just happened? This is day one. And we have 20 plus Wahoo, all between 40 and 100 pounds swimming around us. I mean, this place is like the Mecca of monster Wahoo. So we're not disappointed. We're not bummed. We don't really care that they swim away. We're just like, this is day one. And we're seeing these fish like three miles away from where we were setting anchor. So we were stoked. We were just like, our day was more than made. We knew that if we put in time drifting out here, we're definitely going to land one. Um, and we were like, okay, let's just, let's just keep drifting and see what happens. But we weren't even really focused on landing a fish that day. It was more so just scouting, just seeing what was out there. And we just saw that. So we were, we were, we were just so stoked. So we keep drifting and one of the fish from the school comes back. Um, and we think it's the first fish that showed up that we saw. It had this really rounded nose and it started eating the chum. And so what we call it in spearfishing, we call it climbing the ladder. So when a fish climbs the ladder, what that means is we have been sitting there just putting little pieces, quarter size pieces of chum in the water a couple seconds at a time, creating this little ladder down into the depths. So here comes this fish eating a piece of chum down at 80 feet and then coming on up to 60 feet and then coming on up to 30 feet as he eats these pieces of chum. And he'll eat a couple of pieces of chum and then swim away and then come back in, eat a couple more and then swim away. And Cole and I are just observing his behavior because if you can get a Wahoo to be comfortable to the point where it's eating, you have a lot bigger chance of closing the gap and being able to take a shot because you haven't proved to them that you're a threat. So they're gaining confidence, gaining confidence, gaining confidence, getting food, nothing's negative is happening to them. Nobody's dive bombing them. There's not like crazy wide eyed people swimming towards them, trying to 
put a sharp thing in them. So they get really curious if you take time and you're patient and you let them get comfortable. And it's not always the case. Sometimes while who will show up, they don't want to eat and they leave and you never see them again. And then you missed your shot. So similar to hunting, it's, it's so subjective and right. it's situational. So in, in a lot of ways, you're calling fish in. Um, so it's, it's not necessarily the same situation as somebody who is an ambush hunter in a tree stand or in a ground blind or something like that. Um, you know, you've got the, the bait component, but you've also got, um, the flashers that are in the water. So there's a visual component to attracting those fish. And then, you know, what you're doing with your body and controlling, um, the impulses that are coming from your body into the water is huge. And I thought that was woo woo made up nonsense for a long time. Um, but folks, I'm here to tell you that if you're thinking about killing a fish, that fish knows it. And I think that they know it by the signals that are, that our body's putting into the water. It's their, it's their whole job to survive. They know what predators act like. And if you're acting like a predator instead of just, you know, a sea turtle, um, they're, they're going to catch on to that and, and they're not going to let you kill them. Uh, <laughs> so you've got to lie. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that's exactly, so we had very much been diving slowly and quietly, but like you see a fish and you're the, one of the best shots you can get is a top down shot because then you're using gravity with you too. And trying to get through that fish and puncture through that fish but that wasn't working they could sense the moment you left the surface they could feel the vibration and they could sense it um i also noticed too exactly what you're saying so with wahoo they'll come up all the way to the surface so i would preload my pool spear at the surface and i have the roller pool spear so what i'm doing is i have the band in my hand i pull it up to the grip on the pool spear so i have about six foot of of tension with that rubber band that I'm holding at the surface loaded. So my muscle is completely contracted, holding that pole spear, using all of my oxygen at the surface. They can definitely sense that. So this dive, Cole had made a dive, came up and it was my turn. So I handed him the flasher, handed him the chum. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to do a fun dive. I'm just going to dive away from the fish. I'm not going to load up my pole spear at all. And I'm just going to dive down and kind of hang out with the other pieces of chum over here and be as tucked as I possibly can. So Cole's keeping an eye on the shark at the surface. He's not really doing anything. I'm doing my breathe up, which is a certain type of breathing to lower my heart rate. And I see the Wahoo somewhere to my left. And so I turn and I dive to my right, take a big breath. And I dive down. And as I dive down, I just slowly, like inch by inch, load up my pole spear, nothing crazy. And I barely kick at all, just enough to get down to that. He's about 40 feet deep. So get down to about 40 feet. And now I have my pole spear loaded up. It's a nine foot pole spear. So I'm keeping it nice and tucked against my body. And the tip is about extended out a little bit past my head, but I'm holding it back. So it's not pointed out like this. I'm not pointing the pole spear out at him. I'm trying to be as, as small as possible. I'm bending my knees, kind of curling into a ball and just looking down and holding my breath and not paying any attention. And my goal for that dive wasn't to shoot a fish. <laughs> my goal for that dive was to just dive down and be as small as possible and see if I could get him to come to me. Yeah. By the way, there's video of this, um, which we're going to, we're going to link to. And 
I don't know. You're going to want to watch it more than once. Okay. <laughs> so, so down you go. What are you, what are you 30, 40 feet deep? About 40 feet. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And, um, and the, the Wahoo comes in, he comes in and eats a piece of chum. He's probably two or three feet away from me at this point, comes into my left and eats a piece of chum right in front of me. And in the video, you can see, I don't even move. I don't even flinch. And the reason why is because I didn't see the fish. (laughs) I was focused so much on not making eye contact. So one of the other fish I love to hunt is African pompano. Um, and they're similar to Mahi Mahi in a lot of ways, but with African Pompano, and if anybody ever wants to know how to shoot an African Pompano, dive down away from the fish to the same level, grunt three to four times, count to 10, and then open your eyes and shoot. And they're going to be right in your face. They're so curious. And so I started, I said, why don't I use that technique in, in nature? Eyes are predatory. Eyes are what scare animals away that's why insects have fake eyes on their bodies so i said you know what let me just not look at this fish tuck my head close my eyes don't look at the fish he comes in and eats the piece of chum i didn't even see him and i looked up and i saw him swimming away and i was like oh man i missed my opportunity but then he turned and came back and at this point my eyes are now up and open but still not looking at him and i see him coming towards me and he was coming off to my right hand side So I had just enough time. He was going for a piece of chum right here. You can see it in the video. And I turned my body. And it's not easy to track with those pole spears after you've been down for about 45 seconds. Um, And I just just threw it. So typically, I like to to point the spear, roll it over my arm, kind of looking down the barrel of a shotgun, similar to that, and then take a good shot and try to go for the tail shot. And with this guy, he was coming in for the piece of chum and I knew I had such a small window and he was such a big fish. I literally was just throwing it straight at his body, just trying to puncture through. He was probably about five feet away from me when I took the shot and it hit him hard. You could, I could hear the shot uh, puncture him and, but I saw that the shot was low. So I actually did shoot him in the stomach. We call it a gut shot. Uh, not super low, but definitely in the gut. And that's not a good place to hit a fish like this. Not at all. <laughs> right. Because now he's taken off and pulling that float line and that buoy. So now folks, you need to think about like jaws where they put the barrels, you know, on these harpoons and, you know, the shark takes off and the barrel goes underwater. This is what's happening in real life for Steph. Yeah. Yeah. So he took off like a missile, just like you can't even describe how fast they, I mean, I guess 60 miles an hour. Um, I didn't know the speed, so that's crazy, but my float line is running. And when I let go, my float lines kind of through my snorkel. So it's like running past my head about to rip my mask off. So I, un, I get it from being lassoed around my snorkel and it just takes off and I'm still down at depth, just like, please don't rip off. Please don't rip off. Just watching this. And all of a sudden I see my float running across the surface, diving down past me. And then it just disappears and talk about a one atmosphere float at 33 feet. This thing just became like a balloon running out of air. Like it was just completely compressed and just disappeared into the depths. There goes my huge Wahoo, my pole sphere, my float line, my float and everything disappears. So yeah. and your hopes and dreams, <laughs> like all of it. Well, you, now you've been underwater for a minute, which is a long time. That is a long time to be underwater. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you learn how to free dive, you, it, 
retrains your brain so that you realize you don't need you can hold your breath a lot longer underwater than you could if you were on land. So you understand that aspect of it. But then when you add in the component of spearfishing, I will tell you that the last thing I was thinking about was my need to breathe. <laughs> that yeah. did not cross my mind at all. <laughs> <sighs> okay. So away goes, you know, everything. Are you heading for the surface at this point? Yeah. So I come up to the surface and I get very... So I never celebrate a fish till it's in the boat, regardless of even if I have it, you know, I think I got a great shot. But in this case, I, I knew I didn't get a good shot or a great shot or I thought I hadn't got a great shot. And I came up to the surface and now it's just in the moment. OK, find the buoy. Where is that float? Is it going to pop up? Because uh, the fish is going to take it down. It's going to compress but it still has air in it. The air doesn't go anywhere unless it pops, which it's not going to pop. So as long as the fish doesn't go get wrapped up on something on the bottom, and as long as the fish doesn't dive so deep that it then sinks, it's going to come back up eventually. You just don't know where or how far away. So Cole calls to Jeremy on my sailboat and says, look for the float. The float's down. And Jeremy, who's a Bahamian guy, the spearfishing they do is reef diving and it's very sharky so when somebody shoots a fish they just floor the boat over to the diver to get the diver out of the water so he's flooring my sailboat and it's like yeah, like barely moving and he's freaking out because he's trying to get over to us and we're probably 300 yards away and Cole telling him don't move don't move put the boat in neutral because if the float comes up and he's moving he could actually cut the float off and then the fish would be gone so Jeremy stops moving, puts the boat in neutral, and all of a sudden, I see my float pop up. Well, Cole and I had celebrated our first night in uh, in the remote Bahamas with Jeremy, so we had had a couple beverages the night before, and Cole, both of Cole's legs lock up. So he gets a double leg cramp at the surface, chasing after the buoy with me, and he's like, <laughs> like an agonizing pain so I look over at him I'm like you're okay are you okay he's like yeah yeah I'm good I'm like all right and I, I'm like I'm out <laughs> I, just, I just started taking off for the wahoo oh man so. that's that's hilarious okay so did you see the float come back up at that point yeah so the yeah. float came back up it was about 100 yards away and I just I just took off swimming towards the float as fast yeah. as I could yeah I mean the goal now is just there are sharks in the area. So the goal now is to get over to the fish and try to get the fish up to the surface as, as quickly as possible. Um, but as I got over to my float, I was probably, I don't know, a hundred feet away from my float and I saw the fish take it down again and it was hovering about 40 feet. And then if you fish, you know, Wahoo typically have two or three strong runs in them when you're catching them on a, on a fishing rod. It's the same thing with spear fishing. He took off again, took my float down for a second time. And again, my heart just sank. I was, I couldn't see any, I saw the fish and I saw him go, but I, I couldn't see my, my shot. I couldn't see if it was holding. And there's so many points of potential failure. You have your slip tip could fail. And then you have the different pieces of the pole spear that could come untwisted or break then you have the band because that's what's holding all the tension the band of the pole spear then you have that little metal shackle something could happen to then you have the float line the attachments there and then the float could the seams of the float could bust I mean you're talking about a lot of pressure on all this equipment uh, and I have not shot something that big on on a on this setup before so it was it was all very tested 
which is why using a super high quality pole spear like the Nomad is so important. You know, when I first got that thing, the way those ferrules interact with each other and then the number of threads that are on there, that's not coming apart in the water. It's so stiff and rigid. And, you know, for something that simple, it's incredibly well thought out. So if I was going to try and kill a world record class fish with a pole spear, like there's no question. And that the way that slip tip works is really impressive. Um, are you using cable or are you using Dacron? Uh, the Dyneema. The so Dyneema, yeah. yeah, with Wahoo, you don't want to use the cable because it'll rip through the fish. Sure. So I have the, the three inch warhead slip tip on the, as the tip with the Dyneema line. Um, and uh, that does the trick. Okay. Um, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that part now. Um, so he goes on a second big run. Yep. And this time the float pops up like 50 yards away. And what I mean by that is like the last time, if you see a balloon coming up to the surface, it kind of like veers back and forth and slowly comes to the top. Um, this time the float like reached out of the water and that is really scary for a spear fisherman because that means the shot could have pulled like the fish could have pulled the shot and then there's no tension against the line at all. So the float literally goes from depth and just skyrockets out of the water. So I was really scared at this point that my shot had pulled. And if that had happened, I would have lost the fish. Um, and I, I, I hate injuring fish. I hate taking bad shots. It's just not something everybody who hunts understands that it's a horrible feeling. So I swam over, my heart was sinking at this point and got over to my float and I looked down and I could see the fish was still attached to my pole spear at 40 meters. So the visibility of the water was, was over 200 feet that day. We could see the bottom in a lot of areas and I could see my fish down there. So <laughs> I was really excited. So when you're fighting uh, a wahoo, I should have said this before, but when you shoot, shoot a wahoo, a lot of uh, species like grouper and hogfish, a lot of reef species, even tuna, when they run, you can actually put a lot of resistance against them and to fight them because they have really strong flesh, really strong meat, um, a lot of fibers, uh, strong muscles. So you can put some tension against it with Wahoo. You just want them to run. You don't want to put any tension at all. So when you get a hold of the float line, now I'm literally using my fingertips to pull this fish in because if it does go for another run, I just want to let it run. I'm not going to put resistance. I'm not going to try to fight against it at all. I'm just going to let it run and let the float do its job. So I'm doing fingertip by fingertip, working it up towards the surface. And I get it about halfway up and Cole has caught up with me and he's there watching the whole thing. And I said, Hey, can you go check my shot? Um, I actually asked, I swam up to my float when it was 40 meters down. I said, Hey, can you check my shot? And he's like, um, it's 40 meters down. And I just had double leg cramps. You're going to have to bring it up higher than that. But, uh, got it up about 50 feet down or so. And he dove down just to look at my shot and it was a gut shot, but because this fish had such a big gut, such a big stomach, it was a high gut shot and the meat was so thick there. And the Dyneema line that attaches the slip tip to the pole spear doesn't rip very easily. So the shot was holding. It had penetrated all the way through the slip tip, toggled on the other side, just like it should. And my shot wasn't ripping at all. So even after those two massive runs, I just had little holes in the fish and the slip tip was engaged. So he gave me a thumbs up. 
I pulled the float line and, and got the fish to the surface. And there's some specific rules around um, what can happen while you're fighting the fish um, in order for you to submit it as a record, right? Correct. Yeah. So in order for it to be an IUSA spearfishing world record, nobody can assist you at all. So they can't touch you, your gear or the fish until the fish is completely subdued. So you have your hands in the gills, you've grained it and it's, it's dead. Um, so Cole couldn't, couldn't do anything. He can't put a second shot in for me. He can't grab my float line. He can't hold me up. The only thing he could do is if there were sharks, he could dive down and help keep the sharks away, but he can't grab my fish or my gear at all. Um, gotcha. Luckily we, we didn't have any sharks, not, no sharks came in. We didn't have any situation, but if a shark could come in just by having cold dive down and be present next to the fish, typically that's enough um, presence to deter the, the shark. And then they're not going to touch your fish. So, so yeah, I had to, had to do everything on my own. So got it up to the surface and, um, I'm not a very large human, <laughs> I'm five foot seven. And when I got it to the surface, I realized how massive this fish is. And now I need to try to grab it by the gills. Um, <laughs> it, it was, I mean, the fish is bigger than me. It was an inch longer than me and 10 inches wider than me. Um, so I grabbed it by the tail first because Typically with pelagics, I'll grab the tail and then help grab the gills. But when I grabbed the tail, I couldn't hold it with one hand. I had to use both my hands to hold it. And then I'm like, well, crap, what if this fish decides to take off again? Now I'm holding its tail and Wahoo have razor sharp teeth and they have razor sharp spines on their, on their back, on their dorsal. And now I have this massive fish that's bigger than me, potentially could try to take another run. So that was the only moment I was... That was kind of my oh crap moment. <laughs> yeah. So you threw its tail between your legs, right? I did. So uh, I realized I had to get to the gill and I wanted to have some sort of control on the fish because typically if they feel like you, they can't, like you have them, they're not going to try to fight if they're exhausted. So I just threw the tail between my legs, reached up and grabbed it by the gills, um, got my hand in the gills, held it as hard as I could. And then, I mean, the head was is bigger than my head, like about the size of my torso. And it, all the adrenaline just came to a head. And I realized, I mean, I've been dreaming about this fish. I've, I've truly been manifesting this fish. I was hoping for a 72 pounder. <laughs> and so when I held it, I was like, this is the fish I've, I've been manifesting that I've been, been hoping for this whole time. Um, just a huge accomplishment. So I was, I, I started freaking out and screaming and Cole started screaming and Jeremy started cursing and, <laughs> It was great. Uh, just an incredible fish. So how big did it end up being? So when we got it, we took it straight into the marina and put it on a cert certified scale and it weighed 84.6 pounds. 84.6 pounds. And the previous pole spear world record for, for men and women was 71 pounds? Uh, I think it was actually 74. 74. So you absolutely crushed the record for everyone. Yeah. So how does that feel? <laughs> um, really good. I mean, I, this is where the com competitive nature comes in. It's, it's not so much that I am, I want it to be about me. Like I've done something great. I just love that. Like if I can do it, anybody can do it. I'm just, 
a little girl out here spearfishing. I've been doing it for six years and I've just been super dedicated and motivated. And I went out there and I was able to do it. And I hope that inspires and motivates other people to go out and try to crush it because they can, but it's, it's a huge accomplishment. And there were so many things that made it so special. And the fact that it just smashed every record and it's the biggest Wahoo recorded on full spear to date. Like it's special. Yeah. It's badass. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> i think it's the, i think it's amazing and wahoo's good to eat i like wahoo wahoo tacos are fantastic holy moly they're they're top two for me between yellowfin tuna and wahoo just raw like sashimi sushi so that was cool too because i living on my boat and being in the bahamas for the past three years i'm very aware that I'm a tourist. I, I'm coming here and I'm fishing in their waters and I'm taking their fish. And when we pulled up to the dock, there were some locals there. And so my friend Jeremy wanted to do the honors of filleting it because he's a big Wahoo fisherman. So he filleted it. And then we gave some to the locals and we lived off of it for a week. And it's, it's just cool. It's a cool feeling of camaraderie. I was there with Cole, uh, my boyfriend, who's known what a big dream of mine this has been and then my friend jeremy who invited us there and then the locals who were there um and then the puppies get the scraps i have two dogs my two dogs on board with me so it's just an all-around feel good uh feel good moment it was supposed to happen yeah you know people ask me a lot about why why hunters tend to target larger animals and why why fishermen get more excited about a bigger fish than a smaller fish and uh, I think it's funny that that question even gets asked, but honestly, if you look at human history, that just means more food, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it feels really good to be able to collect food um, because that means that you and the people around you get to survive. It also feels really good to share that food um, in, in today's age, as, as well as given, you know, the last 60,000 years of, of human hunting if just feels good, it's, it's built into us to make that a really important and powerful feeling. And if, if you haven't had the experience of going out and harvesting a piece of wildlife and then getting to eat that and share it with people around you, then you'll, you just can't know how good it feels to be able to have that interaction. Absolutely. There's definitely a primal aspect to it. Um, when my friends mentioned it, he's like, you know, if you think back, you can remember the hunt of every single fish you've taken. And it's because it's going back to that primal need of survival. Like, yes, there's sport in it. Yes. You're going out there for, for passion and for fun, but at the end of the day, you're putting food on the table. And, and I, most hunters act the same way when you get a catch, it's definitely not about the kill. It's not about murdering. It's about the fact that you went out, harvested this animal, and now you can survive off of it. And you know exactly the moment that its life was taken and it wasn't in a pen and it wasn't pumped with hormones. And there there's not, it's all about being selective and sustainable and picking that, that one animal and, um, and giving thanks. Like for us, it's such a big appreciation you'll see it in most of my videos when I bring a fish on board or when I get a fish, I always say like, thank you fish. Like, thank you for your life. It's that recognition that now I'm going to be able to continue to survive because this animal gave their life. So I think it's important to keep that on the, in the forefront of the mind too, that it's not about the murdering, but that big fish, I mean, out here living on a sailboat, 
I can't just go to the grocery store. So that fish definitely carries us for a while. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Now I think there's going to be a lot of people who are properly motivated at this point to look into free diving and spear fishing and into pole spears. Can you talk to me a little bit about how somebody can get started? Um, because it is an intimidating thing. If, if you're not around it, maybe you didn't grow up on the coast and the closest thing to spear fishing that you've ever gotten is listening to this podcast and watching James Bond. Like <laughs> how, how does somebody get started? Yeah. The, the best way to get started is to take a course. I mean, when I teach courses, I've taught people just in one course, a two day course, they're diving down to 55 feet comfortably. And this is someone who has never worn a mask or fins. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter if you're a man or woman. It doesn't matter if you're physically fit. What I love about free diving is it's an even playing field. Uh, anybody can, can do this sport. So I would say first and foremost, just delete the notion that you're not able to free dive because everybody can. And then once you get past that, just sign up for a course. If you need to bring a friend with you, bring a friend but or a spouse or whatever, but sign up for a course, do your level one, uh, and then the doors just open from there. Most free dive instructors know people who spearfish. And once you're free dive certified, a lot of spearfish, people who spearfish will take you out on their boat because now you're a safe certified diver. So they always want a safe buddy on the boat, somebody who can help them uh, with safety skills. So take a free diving course and then join some of the spearfishing clubs on, on um, Instagram and Facebook. So they have great communities and of course, I invite people on my boat too. So feel free to reach out to me. Okay. So do you teach courses? I do. Okay. If somebody wants to take the how to set seven world records uh, free diving course from you, how do they find you? Um, so you can find me Freediver Steph. Uh, so Freediver, S-T-E-P-H. You can find me on Instagram, my website, and YouTube, and it's all Freediver stuff or Freediver stuff at gmail.com. And if I can't help you, I can at least point you in the right direction. Well, you have excellent content. I love what you're all about. I really appreciate this conversation and congratulations on, uh, on your Wahoo. That's a big deal. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. What are your dog's names? Zeke and Finn. Zeke and Finn. All right. Well, they've been very good during this interview. So tell yeah, them. They have. Finn was lying a little bit, but not too badly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Steph. Well, thanks again and be safe out there. Awesome. Thanks for your time. All right. Thank you so much for making the time to uh, to talk with me today. How's your day going? Oh, it's going good. I just built a couple guns and then head back to my home and just let my goats out. So, Okay. What kind of goats do you have? Rescued goats. Rescued goats. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, they're just wild Spanish goats that kind of came to me as they were orphans from their mom. So, okay. Kind of one of those people. Are you on the big island? Yeah, I'm on the big island. Nice. Those are some beautiful sheep on the wall behind you. Yeah. You got quite a bit. Nice. And you primarily bow hunt when you're sheep hunting? Um, it depends on the situation, but I prefer to bow hunt mostly. It's just a little bit closer to spear fishing for me. Yeah. So it's actual spot and stock and, you know, you got to take your time to make sure you can get a shot versus like, mm, normally with the rifle, you can just post up and just pick whatever you want. Yeah. 
Well, uh, introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about who you are. Okay. Uh, my name is Kylie Umeda. Uh, I am the owner of Aim Right America. Uh, I've been spearfishing for 23 years now, and I've also been hunting since I was 10 years old. So I've been pretty well-rounded in the outdoors, in the water and land. And I've been uh, building spear guns for the last five years on my own from my uncle. Uh, so he's the one who actually sold me the company. Okay. And I was working before that for him. And he's a super nice guy. He was uh, He's ex-military. So he kind of basically taught me a lot about spearfishing and like doing tournaments. And that's kind of where you know, my head's been at for the last 10 years in competitive stuff. What branch was he in? He was in Navy. So Mr. Rick Patua, he actually has a pretty cool book out right now. It's okay. called Breed. But uh, he is very well-rounded in the water. And he actually is a master chief, master diver. So he's a really good waterman. That's awesome. And uh, is that a... I mean, obviously that's an important thing in the Navy, um, but is that important um, just culturally? Um, is he on the big island as well? He's actually in Australia now. So oh, he's he, retired. He yeah, so he got over the years, I guess, from the type of diving that they used to do, he got injured pretty badly. I think he had like total of 26 big surgeries and just from his career in the military. Yeah. Yeah, the military is good about using up a body, but they improve a little bit all the time, and uh, hopefully it gets better and better for troops as as they go. Tell me a little bit about uh, Aim Right USA. Uh, so Aim Right USA was founded by Uncle Rick Patua and his uh, wife, Angela, and it actually originated in Honolulu uh, with his other partner. And the idea was... During that time, they wanted to make a pipe gun that was lightweight, versatile, and basically indestructible. So that's where his military background came in. And that's where we kind of took a bunch of those concepts, like using, you know, aircraft green grade aluminum, all the different parts like of stainless that you could possibly put into like our, our material and our like handles. So all the, that techno technology that he kind of learned from the military we've kind of innovated it and you know made sure that it can withstand Hawaii waters and the durability tests like jumping out of a you know a boat getting it run over by a boat sometimes I have customers for example tell me that uh hey Kylie uh my gun it fell out of the back of my truck on the H1 highway is this covered by warranty I'm like no, it's not, but, <laughs> but yeah, like things like that, you know, we learn and we just try to innovate and keep finding the best material we possibly can for our gear. And when you're talking about a pipe gun, uh, tell me a little bit more about what that is for, for those who don't know a lot about spearfishing. Can I actually grab one and I can show you just for you for reference that way you can see I it. actually own, I, I own one of your guns. I love it. Oh, do you? Yeah. Which one? Yeah. Um, it, I think it's a 100 and 120 centimeter gun. I bought it a couple of years ago in Maui. Maui Sporting Goods by any chance? Yes, but at Maui Sporting Goods. Yeah. They highly recommend you. Yeah, they're super nice guys. The owner is uh, Brian. Okay. Small Japanese guy, talks really rough, probably cusses <laughs> a little bit. 
<laughs> I, I had a, a younger gentleman helping me and um, he was, he was pretty gentle with me cause I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know what I'm doing. And uh, yeah, I told him that I was hard on gear and he, he told me that your guns were tough. So that's what I got. Very good. Well, yeah. So our pipe guns, um, so we either make them out of uh, aluminum or it's carbon fiber, which is what I prefer. They're a lot quieter, a little bit stronger, but the m- most important thing for me is quiet. Like yeah. we have fish here in Hawaii that are pretty fast, like they're moved. So they're a big eye emperor and they can turn on a dime. So as soon as they hear that, it's just it's like a axis deer jumping your guy's arrows, basically. Yeah. They're super fast. Yeah. Uh, when, I, when I talk to guys like, uh, oh, like Justin and, uh, and Capono, they really like moo. They think that the, those are just the best fish. Yeah, it's uh, it's hard to explain. They're like majestical because they'll, you know, do a bunch of things that most fish won't do. Like they'll get you really excited because they'll just come in just out of range and then they can just dig out. Gone. Or like you have to figure out all different ways and techniques to like get them close enough for you to shoot. And they yeah. are very nice white meat and real flaky. So previously we heard from Steph Schultz talking about her, her pole spear experience in the Bahamas. And we talked about the, the range of a pole spear being about 75% of its total length, somewhere in that range, depending on the spear with an aim, right? What kind of effective range do you have with those guns? So it depends on the length and like really what you're planning on doing, but like, say for example, uh, like a hundred centimeter roller gun. It's a, a little bit more effective because of the system it's working on. So the bands are pulled all the way to the front versus a conventional open muzzle. So it's going to stop at a shorter distance and there's going to be a lot more shaft drop and there will be a little bit more recoil. So say for this 100 centimeter, you don't want to shoot more than I'd say 12 feet. Okay. Um, which is... A substantial distance underwater. 12 feet is a long shot. Definitely. Yeah. If somebody were just to get into spearfishing, say that they'd taken a, a free diving class and they wanted to do some some shore dives, mm-hmm. uh, what gun would you recommend to them and why? Uh, so normally, like for Hawaii waters, I would say 100 centimeter would be about like something you would want to start off with it is but i would also make sure you would get a carbon gun if you're going to stick with it because over the long term you'll notice that the lumen is a little bit a little bit louder and it will so it'll make a loud shink because it'll be actually sliding right off of the aluminum track and then sometimes the fish will be more aware and eventually you'll just upgrade anyway yeah so, centimeter fury is what i'd recommend to start off okay with. A hundred centimeter gun can be a lot for somebody to load who who doesn't know how, like if they're just getting started. Where can someone learn like the basics of of how to operate the gun, how to how to reload it, you know, safety stuff. Are there any schools in Hawaii that people can go to or or what's up in that department? Yeah, so on the Big Island in Maui, there are uh, actual two uh, companies that I work really closely with. One is Top Shot Spearfishing, and then the other one is Maui Spearfishing Academy. 
and they'll go over the basics of, you know, gun safety, water safety, and they'll actually teach you how to approach fish. That way you won't spook them as much. That's one thing that I noticed a lot of people have a difficulty just being in the water and practicing their, take their snorkel out, all those bubbles. Otherwise we'll just kind of make the fish more aware. So mm. doing certain things like that help a lot. And just also having like a bunch of people with you. So that way you can watch each other and then tell them like, Hey, you know, maybe next time you want to tuck your head a little bit better when you make your descent. So a lot of times I notice younger divers or people getting into diving, they primarily just kind of do it, but they're not being aware or thinking about, you know, actually, you know, like following through with their movements. So a lot of times I see kids, they'll be like, no, auntie, I did it right. I'm like, no, let me show you on the GoPro. And they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm to on that one. I'm like, it's okay. <laughs> Um, of all the places that, that I've swam, which isn't a lot, but of all the places that I've swam, the fish in, in Hawaii, they know what's up. Like those fish have been hunted for so many generations. Uh, they absolutely know what's going on. And if you're just out snorkeling in Hawaii and you're, and you, you don't understand what, what I'm talking about, like I was covered in fish, I was snorkeling, there's fish all around me they know that you're not spearfishing. <laughs> so all the, all these tricks that you're talking about um, when you're actually hunting a fish, there's a lot to it and you've got to be, you've just got to have your mind, right. You've got to be, you know, emotionally and spiritually in the right place. Otherwise it's not going to happen. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about these competitions that you're getting in. Well, now I'm retired, but oh, okay. uh, I mean, a lot of the competitions that I did do in the past were like nationals uh, would be saltwater or freshwater. And then we also did a bunch of inter-Pacific ones, which is like a bunch of the countries in the Pacific come and usually they pick the hardest place on whatever island or whatever country. And then you have to just compete against that country. And I particularly like the inter-pack, which is what this one is called because it is the safest. It is a one up, one down rule. And you have to hold on to like a little tether on your float. That way no one can let it go and just, you know, both people dive. And then there are a lot of people watching. So that's the primary one that I recommend people to try out for versus like nationals. I'm not saying that nationals is, I wouldn't try and discourage people, but that is the one tournament where more it's more prone for people to have accidents and to black out unfortunately gotcha rules aren't really made to protect the divers well that's unfortunate um i think in a lot of sports we've we've done a good job of finding ways to protect athletes if they're not doing that in something as consequential as diving that's probably a mistake it's there's not a fish out there that's worth injuring yourself over yeah definitely but that's the one tournament i'd say that a lot of the times you will almost be diving by yourself. That's, that's a big no, no for me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, diving reefs versus, uh, blue water. What's your take on it? Uh, I like both, but I primarily like to do reef diving more just because I like to swim around and I like to actually 
do more trigger time versus floating around in the blues. But when that big Ono does come, that's pretty nice to see. Yeah. So Ono, Wahoo, same thing. Really, yep. really impressive fish. Great to eat. Uh, hard to hunt. I've never, I've never been, um, been in a place where I could spearfish for, for Ono, but I've caught them on rod and reel. And I think that they're pretty incredible, pretty incredible. I can't, can't imagine, uh, having them come in when I was underwater. I, I don't think that I've got the, the courage to keep my composure. The fun thing about them is they're like cats. I'd say that's the closest thing I could ever compare Ono to. They sometimes like you, sometimes they don't like you. <laughs> you have like only a couple seconds to figure out what they want or what they don't want. And then you have to execute your shot. So like, for example, a lot of times we'll be diving and you'll see them appear out of nowhere. And instantly they start like moving their eye and like checking you out. And a lot of times you'll just like dip on them and they'll be like, nope, bye, see ya. And then you're like, oh, shit. Okay, what did, what did I do wrong? And then you're like swimming away sloppy and just like whatever. So, like, super <laughs> small. And they're, they're following you. And you're like, what the hell? And then you turn around <laughs> and they're like, oh, okay. They want the down. Now they want to play. So it's like, it's the funniest fish. That's why I really like shooting them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you can see why people get obsessed with those fish. Getting a little bit of vengeance for the ones that swam off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are some of your tips and tricks for uh, for getting a fish to come towards you? Uh, so like for Ono, for example? Yeah, or give me a couple examples. Okay. Well, like for Ono, like blue water fish mostly, um, you can do the squid hand. Yeah, little spirit fingers thing. Spirit fingers. Yeah. That strum your bands on the gun but it's mostly body language is what i'd say is the most important thing for all the fish in general so like for example if i'm a predator and you're my prayer i don't want somebody like staring me down with big eyes and just like with that demeanor like i'm gonna kill you you just have to stay calm collective no real big sudden movements i'd say is probably the most important just calm relaxed just nonchalant, and then usually they come in a lot quicker. I've noticed a lot of sheep are like, something's wrong. And I'm like, I think they can feel my presence just because I'm like, I want to kill you so bad. Yeah. I mean, I've had that experience with elk a lot where I know that I have the wind right. I know that that my camouflage is good. My concealment is good. I haven't made a sound. And they'll get to a point where they sense something and I don't know what that is, but you know, you're just pegged and you know, you can, you can experience it a hundred times and never really figure out what that thing was that they were able to key in on. And not every elk does it right. And not every fish does it. Sometimes, you know, elk aren't paying attention or, you know, whatever, but, uh, but sometimes you just get busted. And I, I think that there's, there's probably something to it that, that we just don't understand yet. Mm -hmm, definitely. Do you primarily like to bow hunt or do you like to do both? I will use absolutely anything. If there was a slingshot only season, I would use a slingshot. <laughs> um, if there was a blowgun only season, I would use a blowgun. So I, I use, I always use the most lethal 
uh, thing that I can. Um, so that's something that's really ethically important to me is making sure that I'm not sacrificing lethality in order to stroke my own ego or something like that. So if I were in the Bahamas, yeah, I'd absolutely use a pole spear. If I was in the Bahamas and they said, hey, you guys can use spear guns today, I would use a spear gun. Um, yeah. it's, the, it's the same thing with hunting big game. So I'm I'm always going to gravitate towards whatever is going to be the most effective because I don't want to risk wounding something just because I wanted to use a specific type of weapon. And I'll I'll make a, a caveat to that because last year I shot my bull elk with a pistol, with a um, SIG 10 millimeter pistol. But it was a 35 yard shot. I practiced more than a reasonable person would practice. And mm -hmm. I knew everything about it. So there wasn't there wasn't a, a sacrifice or a risk of lethality as long as I put restrictions on myself. And and I see a lot of spear fishermen do the same thing. If they see a fish that's at that 11 foot range and they know they've got a gun that, you know, peters out after 12 feet, they're going to pass on that shot a lot of times um, because they don't want to just blow scales off of a fish or not get good penetration and then lose it. That's not the point of what they're doing. So what about you? What what uh what tickles your fancy? Bow, rifle, pole spear, uh, spear gun? Lately I've just been using a really small spear gun just to like for me, I like the challenge of getting really close to fish. And sure. like that's the only thing that really gets me excited nowadays. So I'm like, I got five feet from a moon. I'm like, oh. What's but, really small? Like 75 or are we talking smaller? I just made myself a little 55 centimeters. Really? Super cute. But is it a roller? No, it's just a open muzzle, single band, single wrap. So if I can kill something with that, I'm super stoked. I bet that's fun to carry around. Well, it's super tiny. So it's like, you know, I'll take the kids and then they'll just be like swimming around. And a lot of times they'll like shoot something and it might come off, but it's so easy for me to go in the hole and just pop it. And like, here you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh... that's getting really really close and like i don't have to shoot it but just knowing that oh i got you this time <laughs> that makes me happy did you start spear fishing when you were a kid yeah so i started with a pole spear a three pong what was it maybe a six footer and i used to shoot like holes and the hole holes and the jacks at the break wall and that's how i actually started off and i would do that every weekend and eventually i got a spear gun my mom finally said, okay, you can get one. And after that, done. Just every weekend, gone, camping. Like, hey, guys, it's big swell, but, you know, who's up to take me down south? One of the day homework, my mom's like, yep, you guys can go. <laughs> That's awesome. So the the roller spears are are a big deal because it it's pre-tensioned, right? So you get a little bit more... You get a little bit more effort off the initial push and the end push of the bands and then a little bit more distance because like you're talking about that that slack at the end of the bands isn't isn't as much of a factor what else is is sort of new in spear guns you know it, it seems like a category that that in a lot of ways hasn't changed much in the last 30 years but there are changes that are going on so what's what's sort of the cutting edge of of that technology so like right now too, there'll be like um, inverted rollers and that would mean that there would be 
like a top band and you'll load that one and then you'll flip it over and then they could be four bands to six bands or eight bands on the bottom short ones like real stubby ones and then that way you can actually load less but you have to load more just so you can get that maximum distance that you need but like for Hawaii for example simplicity kind of works best um and we have, I'd say primarily most of the divers here in Hawaii do go from shore and it is sometimes really, really rough and they still go, but it's like having something like that is a little bit more fragile. So as far as like, you know, that type of spear gun, it's not really the best choice for our Hawaii waters. So that's the only difference. You have to make sure it's something that's going to be able to still shoot in the water and not break by the time you get out. I, I don't think any any good spearfishing conversation is complete without talking about sharks. And uh and a lot of spear fishermen have have a, a good respect for sharks, but they're pretty comfortable with them. But some tiger sharks have been killing folks in Hawaii in the last couple of years. What's the deal with that? Uh, I mean, that's the thing, right? Sharks, that's their home. We don't have to be in there, but we have to respect them. So a lot of times we'll give them chance, we'll push them away, push them away, and then you know, that that's enough. And then we just jump out new spot if you have a boat. But a lot of times it's just, it's not worth it. You know, like if yeah. you see they're aggressive, dorsal fins up, peck fins down, swimming at you fast. Sometimes you just have to hold the spear gun in front of you and just keep them at bay just so you can get into short and make sure everybody is safe. Cause it's definitely not worth the fish at that point. For sure. So, yeah. so is it usually happening once you've stuck a fish? Sometimes no, uh, a lot of times they'll be trained already. And cause we do have like some people who will chum the waters for them primarily just so they can do cage diving or just so they can bring, you know, the tiger shark closer to the boat. So that unfortunately trains them to be like, okay, well, you know, humans are okay. Just come closer now, unfortunately. But, yeah. uh, yeah, it's just one of those things we have to live with. And, you know, if you feel uncomfortable, just, you know, you always jump out of the water. Anything, yeah. get back to shore. Has there been anything with this last couple in, in Maui? Like there was a bunch of shade on the internet about the husband being involved and craziness like that. Uh, I, I've noticed, though, in the last two years, there have been a bigger population of uh, sharks and you know I, i'm pretty sure that it's during their breeding season because they are way more aggressive like there is this uh dive that we did maybe two months ago uh, my partner and i we actually just jumped off of the ski into the water i didn't even get to load my gun yet and the shark rushed me so quickly i didn't even have time to push it away it like hit the tip of my gun and then the gun hit me in my chest I was like, okay, we're done. Not even. <laughs> yeah. There was like at least nine that I could see on the surface, and they were just circling us. And I was like, oh, this is this is really shitty. We gotta move. So, do you think that was a situation where there was like one female and then eight males? Uh, it's just hard to say. I'm not like an expert as far as like telling if they're males and females. I can definitely tell when there might be a female because her belly will be so big. Right. But a lot of times once one gets into that frenzy, then they just all follow. I know that for sure. When one is like, oh, there's food, then they just kind of get in that mode and they're just 
all aggressive normally. Yeah. I would be getting out of the water as well. Maybe forever. Uh, if, if a shark ran my own spear gun into my chest, I think that I might, uh, I don't know, pick up golf. <laughs> well, <laughs> as long as you're with a partner that can watch your back, you should be fine. Yeah. And anytime uh, you want to go fishing, you're more than welcome to come. Okay. Thank you. Well, I'll, I'll, uh, I've got family in, uh, in Waimea. Um, so okay. I need to get back out there and see them. And, uh, I've got a, I can't remember what kind of gun I've got hanging out in a closet at that place, but I think it's like a set little 75 or something, but if people want to buy and aim right, uh, how do they do it? How do they know what to get? How do they know, um, how do they order it, get a service, get replacement bands, all that stuff. So, I mean, I prefer if you could go to a local store and uh, I mean, a lot of times, like, say, for example, like your Maui Sporting Goods, where you got your gun, they talked to you about it and they went over like the safety mechanism on our spear gun. And usually I'd like them to deal with you, like say if something did break, I usually send a part to them and then they'll just replace it for me. That way, you know, they can tell you like, oh, maybe like the next time. Don't run it over with your truck or, you know, something <laughs> like that. Because <laughs> it happens. It, it's crazy how many times it happens. But um, if and if not, that's okay. I'm pretty good at as far as customer service. Um, just, you can always send the gun back and then the turnover time is a day anyway. So Gotcha. Who are some of your competitors? Are there other American-made spear guns? Yeah, there is. Um, well, not quite like uh, I'd say... They're more more wood guns, and they're a little bit different. They're not, um, they're more on the higher end side. So I think that kind of can deter a lot of people. So like the price I noticed is everything. Yeah, like if you're just getting into it, you don't have a ton of money to start off. You know they're gonna go for like the cheapest cheaper stuff, and like you know a, a cheaper gun on our our uh, website would be like three fifty. So a lot of times people will kind of be like, okay, well, they'll go to the, my competitor a lot of times. But the thing is, they'll be like, shit, Kylie, I wish I just went with you in the first place. I wouldn't have had like broken parts on this gun. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I have a lifetime warranty, which you can't really beat. And if you buy a cheap gun and it's got a sloppy trigger mechanism and safety and that spear's coming flying off the rail when you're not wanting it to, you don't want anything to do with that. That's bad. So my advice to people is to consider spending the same amount of money on a spear gun as you would on your hunting rifle. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's going to get you a, a similar quality, like something that could legitimately be in your will that you'll pass along to the next generation and will continue to function for a really long time. Um, you've got to take care of them, but they're a, they're a really great tool. And that quality and, and workmanship is evident as soon as you put your hands on one. Well, you have one. So, I mean, if you ever any, have any problems, you just call me up or whatever, and I'll help you out. I only get to go like once a year, you know? So that thing is going to definitely outlast any problems that I could cause it unless I run it over with a pickup, something along those lines. Well, tell me a little bit about uh, about hunting in Hawaii, um, hunting on land. Well, Hawaii is a pretty awesome place. I mean, we can go hunting and we have, you know, on our island, we have sheep, we have goats, we have pigs. And 
On the other islands, we have deer, which is pretty cool. And axis deer is my favorite to hunt. And it's crazy because we don't have seasons like you guys. Yeah. I mean, everything here literally is not supposed to be here. So it's pretty much a free-for-all. Like when you guys have like one deer you can take for the season, we shoot 20. Yeah. And there are a lot of axis deer on, on Maui and Lanai. How's the population on Molokai? Uh, it's dwindling just because of the drought. The animals aren't very healthy, unfortunately. And uh, I just feel really bad for them. Uh, a lot, it's basically dust right now. Really? So, uh, there was this last rain, it kind of spruced up a little bit. But the last ones that my friend guy shot, they were so skinny, they have to leave them. It just wasn't really worth worth it because we were like, it was almost a mercy kill. No kidding. And is that drought just on Molokai or are there other islands that are being affected? Uh, all the other islands too. Even us. Our big island is pretty dry. So even our mountain is a little scary. So like we just ha- can't park anywhere we normally want to park. We have to just either like leave the truck on the road and then we'll walk whatever and then make, make sure when we turn around especially we have to make sure it's like all on rocks. We don't want to touch our car on the grass or anything like that. Cause if that mountain burns, well, like I, I wish I had a picture I could have shown you, but it was um literally the whole mountainside was all brown. It's it's been like this for what three and a half months already. No rain. Really, and how uncommon is that? We go through seasons like this once in a great while, but I mean. This year has been pretty bad, I would say. Like Justin's uh ranch too. So we can see his from where we hunt. But yeah. they're like their cause, which is like normally the big trees that catch all the dew in the morning, but all their grass is just bone dry. Wow. I don't think most people understand how many cattle are on are on the big island and and other places in Hawaii too. I've actually shipped cattle to uh to Maui before and it was it was super funny when we did it because our cattle have horns and Mm -hmm. uh, we're flying them over so we had to uh, duct tape tennis balls to the tip of each horn and so they they had these like silver like antenna looking things on the end of each horn looked like a plane load of aliens heading to Hawaii but uh, I mean the the Parker Ranch um, headquartered in Waimea at one time that was the biggest ranch in the United States and they've got just thousands and thousands of head of cattle still so if it gets really dry like that you guys are in trouble oh yeah definitely I I mean a lot of my friends are ranchers so they you know I mean just try and dwindle their herd as best as they can keep what they can for the land use and then just hold just wait because if their wells dry oh that's gonna be a hard time for them yeah What's the volcanic activity like? Uh, so I don't know if you saw Mauna Loa erupted for a little while, which is super cool. Thank God it didn't actually come to Hilo or any of the major towns because that would have been horrible. But um, are, are you in Hilo? Yeah, so I'm in Hilo. Okay. And uh, where it is like from my shop isn't that far. So I was like, oh, please don't come down. And if it goes over that highway, oh. Everything gets trucked over. That's why from that main port in Kauai to Hilo, to Kona, wherever, Hamakua. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been stand still, literally. Does uh, Tokunaga's sell your guns? Yeah, they do. 
Yeah, that's a cool shop. I love that shop. My dad works there, so he works in the back at the gun section. Okay, I bought uh, I bought this mask from them a few years ago, and uh, this kid was selling me on it uh, because of my stupid mustache that lets water in. And uh, I was like, oh, this is great. You know, I'd never seen a, a ventilated mask before that I could purge purge water out of. And then uh, then I was swimming and wearing it and all these local kids were making fun of me because it was like a 70s style, like big mask. <laughs> like, oh, I, I might have gotten punked at Tokunaga's, but it's still a super cool fishing shop. I, If anybody's ever uh, in Hilo, you should go in there and check that one out because they've got everything and um, there's some characters working in there. Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have to put Vaseline a little, just a little bit on your stash? I learned about the the Vaseline trick. Yeah, that's a that's a, that's a power play, and I've been told that that will um, ruin the the rubber latex on your mask. But I don't really care. It works so well. Um, it just makes for a way better diving experience. Yeah, I know a bunch of guys will bring razors and then they'll shave right before they dive, just so that they can get their that skirt right underneath their nose. Yeah. Like that's some dedication. I give you guys credit. <laughs> uh, I think the worst thing though is just like the stubble on your cheeks. If you don't shave that stuff off, then you're just going to be leaking the entire time. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about some other dive equipment. You know, one thing that that a new diver might not realize is that you really need um, a, a chest plate. Like if you're trying to load, load a spear gun a bunch of times without some type of a pad, um, you're going to have bruises all over your body. It's, it's not going to be a, a great experience. Even in warm water, I, I see everybody's wearing uh, a wetsuit, at least a top. So just talk me through some of the other equipment that, that might go along with it. Um, yeah, so definitely a wetsuit that has the chest loading pad. I mean, you can only load the gun so many times before you break your skin, for sure. So that's pretty important. I mean, otherwise, you can just get away with the rubber slipper. Yeah. That's another cheat one. Just uh, rubber local slipper, shove it in there, good to go. <laughs> but definitely, uh, I'd recommend like a really good knife, a good dive knife, something that you can get with both hands, not just one hand. Because I see kids nowadays, they'll put it on their leg or something like that, but they only can reach it, say, with their right hand. What happens if your right hand got tangled up in the line? Would you be able to reach it with your left? So people need to be aware of like that kind of stuff. Because I see a lot of people nowadays going out without any knife whatsoever, and they have a real, if you get tangled up in that, you're not breaking it. The fish is going to take you. So where do you carry your knife on your body? So I mean, I have it on my belt and it's actually angled forward. So I can reach it with my left or my right. And I'd prefer it not to be like on your arm or on your leg or something like that. Because when you're trying to clear line, say you shoot a big fish, like it's more like an ahi, I'd say. When you're clearing your line and you're trying to push it away from you, a lot of times those ahis like to do their death run is what I call it. The last 30 feet of when they're at the surface, they'll just do one more super, super hard kick. And if it just got wrapped around in your on your arm or something like that, it's done. You're not coming back up. Yeah. Yeah. Bad situation that has happened to people. It's, this isn't a made up thing. Who makes a good dive knife? 
for me, I like the uh, Easy Lock. I think it's like an Aqua Lung. Uh, it's a titanium uh, knife. Hmm. The only reason I like the titanium is because it doesn't actually rust, and a lot of people don't really take care of their stuff. I'd say. Sure. So like, if you can afford a really good, nice knife, then I'd definitely say go for it. But uh, for the people who don't, just they just rinse their stuff with some fresh water and good to go. That titanium Easy Lock is probably the best for durability and it actually stay sharp. What brand do you like for a wetsuit? I'd have to say my brand, but um, to be honest, my favorite actually is the Elios. It's made in uh, Italy just because mm. it's a comfortable custom wetsuit for myself. And I usually get one a year for myself. And a lot of times it's weird because like my shoulders are really big and like the rest of my body is really small. So it's like, well, you can't beat custom stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that fit is really important, especially if you're at, at your level, what I've heard from a lot of people is that if they've got any kind of discomfort, then that's taking seconds off of their dive um, and is distracting. Yeah. So if you want a wetsuit, you want to make sure it's comfortable for one, it protects you. And lastly, it can keep you warm throughout your four to, you know, six, seven, eight hour dive. But yeah, a lot of people will I notice nowadays a lot of people like the cheaper stuff and they'll like deal with it for a little while. Like when I say cheaper stuff, I'll say like it's a junker rubber, like a cheaper neoprene. And yeah. on a trip that's like four or five days of straight diving and you're in the water for eight hours, all on your little creases, like your elbows and behind your knees, especially that will chafe like crazy. Even if you put Vaseline. Okay. So that's a, that's a good area to invest in. If somebody's going to get a, a wetsuit from you, how do they make sure that it's going to fit them? So we have size charts and in all honesty, sometimes it just won't fit a person. I, it's just up to them because some people just never had a wetsuit before. So they yeah. don't really know how it's supposed to fit. So I don't care. You guys can totally just send it back and, you know, exchange for a different size. Cause yeah, it's like, there, there will be some people like, for example, I have this kid that he has like crazy dreads and for him, he, he likes to braid it and then he'll shove it down his back and it's super long, like his butt. And then, so we have to account for that. And I was like, how are you extra, extra large, bro? And he's like, oh, my hair, I have to put it down my back. Here <laughs> it's not going to fit. So it's like, you know, stuff like that. And those things that you just can't account for. Is he from Pune? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. understand how you can like get it wet and like let it dry. It's, that's like, I was like, that must take hours. Dude, things get weird if you start going south from Hilo. Yeah, I'd say you're going to see like people running down the highway just airboxing and just yelling some crazy shit all the time. <laughs> it's typical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I was on a family vacation and we ended up on a, on a beach that we didn't quite understand what that beach was all about. And it's pretty awkward, pretty awkward, but that's Puna. Is that a Kahena beach by any chance? Sounds familiar. Yep. Uh, 
a bunch of naked people, a lot of hippies uh -huh. running around. Yeah, yep. that's the one. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you can definitely do some people watching, have your 12 pack and be entertained for hours. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness. Okay, so we've got our we've got our spear gun at this point. We ended up getting a hundred centimeter roller. Uh, we've got a wetsuit that we use the size chart to make sure that it fits. What else does a person need who's getting into this? Fins are very important, and uh, the foot pockets that go along with it. So, uh, quality pockets that you know will last you and that's comfortable. So people have to be aware if they're actually gonna wear booties, which is like thin little socks that go on, you know, I'd recommend it just because if you have to jump out someplace where you didn't actually enter, you can still run up and climb the cliff versus yep. being barefoot. really sucks. Um, and the fins you can get, like we make, well, this company in Australia that I love their fins. That's why I rep their stuff. So a lot of times I'll just see what the customer is going to really do and if they're gonna stick with it, then I'd recommend like carbon blades. But a lot of times they'll just stick with like composite, which is just like fiberglass. But it's also very durable, but it is a little heavier. So it's all about like the person and what they, so a lot of times too, I always talk them out of it. So a lot of times they think, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna swim like for five hours and I can do this. I'm six foot three and 250 pounds. I want extra, extra stiff. I'm like, no, I don't think so. Your ankles will be, you will be crying after a two hour dive. Yeah. So a lot of times I'll just be like, okay, well, this is what I'd recommend, you know, just get some mediums because you want to be able to be comfortable on your kick cycle. You don't want to get that fatigue in your thighs. But a lot of times that's, that's a lot of oxygen that you got to burn just to push your body. So I'll base it on like that, my customers, and I try and get them fitted to the, you know, the best product that I have. Okay. What about mask and snorkel? Mm, that's all preference on people, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, like you have a stash there. So it's what fits you the best. I, I mean, I personally, I like to use the Nidas and a lot of times it won't fit a lot of people. So you just have to really go to a local store and just try every single one on. So the quick check would be like, you put your mask on, you inhale and you seal it, see it if there's any, you know, places where it doesn't seal right or if there's like weird pressure. Because there are people who are just, some people can't wear certain masks where it'll like, you know, hurt their nose, their bridge of their nose, or it'll hit their eyebrow ridge a little bit too much. So that's yeah. all. That's very important that your mask fits correctly. You can't just, you can't just grab like the, the mask snorkel fin set from, you know, the same place that you bought your sunscreen and, uh, and think that that's going to work out. Then it, it can, right. If you're just splashing around, but it, you know, we're talking about taking this a little bit more seriously and using the, the best equipment that we can get for reasonable amounts of money. So yeah, mask fitting pretty important in my opinion as well uh what else um gloves pretty important i mean it's that's also very about the customer's preference like for me i use those i think it's a kevlar max maxi flex glove i buy like them by like a hundred pack for yeah. the whole year 
but I like those the best. They're thinner, so I can feel everything. And when they are done, just toss them and I don't have to feel bad about it versus like, you know, some of the neoprene ones kind of hinder your trigger pull. So like for me, I, I shoot gun when I was younger, competitive. So if something didn't feel right where I would pull my trigger finger, uh, I don't like it. So yeah. it's all about people and, you know, what they want to get out of their shooting. Okay. How about some other safety equipment, like a, like a float and float line? Yeah. So that's, well, in Hawaii, you're supposed, you're required to have a float with the flag on there. Okay. So definitely for people who are starting out, you need one anyway. And I'd recommend not have, putting a reel on top of their gun just yet. You know, that's something that they can always get tangled up in when they're, you know, too excited a lot of times. So just clipping the gun straight to that float line to the float, that's the easiest thing. Because if you have to ditch it, you can. And I'd say too, a lot of times you won't be coming out in, you know, the same spot that you jumped in. So having that float and like being able to get in safely and then drag your fins or, you know, your gun in the back, that's the easiest and the safest. So do you have to have... um all that stuff, even if you're just going to do a shore dive. That's correct. Yeah. And how long should, uh, should your float line be for something like that? Uh, it depends on like, for example, like the diver, like we have guys who just go for taco, which is, you know, the octopus and so it'll be real shallow. So I'd say 40 to 60 feet is what you would want to do for when you first start off. Gotcha. Octopus is awesome. That's one of my favorite foods. Nice. Yeah. How do you prepare yours? So I just got four of them in Mexico a couple weeks ago and I, I boiled them for 15 minutes, but I blanched them three times while I was doing that. And, uh, then I just simmered them in olive oil and garlic for a couple hours. And, uh, it was awesome. It was super good. I charred them up a little bit on the grill at the end, but what's, uh, what's your inside hack on, uh, on cooking, uh, cooking octopus. So normally, like, I actually like to take them and I'll throw it in the freezer first. Okay. And wait till it's completely frozen. Then I'll thaw it back out. It helps get that slime off yeah. way easier than, like, pounding it that day. And it makes it a lot softer anyway. And then I'll usually wait till I get quite a bit. And then I'll just boil it in some water and some sake and chop the legs off. And then either... We'll make like kimchi poke with it, or I'll throw it on the smoker or put it in the dryer and make little jerkies out of them. Nice. I took that on the mountain. Do you, uh, do you bite them to kill them? Yeah. The little mac nut in their head. Yeah. I'm not brave enough. They're so slimy and weird. I, I can't get over it yet. Don't worry. I mean, like, it's just. I think a lot of people have that misconception where like they can just bite it instantly. But the easiest thing is wait till like, you grab their head and then their, all their legs go down your arm. So there's not like one that would grab your snorkel or anything. And then, <laughs> then you bite them. But yeah, <laughs> all the time, like you're just climbing on their back and then they make their great escape. <laughs> it's good fun though, watching people. Yeah, once once they uh get into their own water and take off, it's over. I'm not I'm never catching that octopus again. <laughs> it was actually super fun where we were, uh, because they were all living in conch shells on the bottom. Okay. Um, 
So if a conch shell had rocks stacked on top of it, then there was an octopus in it. If it didn't have rocks on it, you didn't need to worry about it. So you just went along looking for conchs with uh, with rocks on them and swim down and grab it. And there's an octopus. Nice. Yeah. So easy. Even I could do it. Where can uh, can people follow along with uh, with what you're doing and uh, aimrightusa.com, right? That's, that's where they can um, order stuff from you. But just the life of, of Kylie, if they want to see you out there uh, hooking and jabbing with these great big sheep and axis deer and pigs and diving and everything that's going on, where, where can people follow along with that? I mean, it's primarily in my Instagram, but lately I haven't really been posting. I've been too busy working, but definitely have to get back on it. What is, I don't even know my Instagram name. <laughs> <laughs> I think monster, maybe. I can't remember. I think the last time I posted was. 22 that's nice. well that wasn't that long ago Ugh. yeah i definitely have to get up back on it no not necessarily it's not for everybody and you're working you're hustling you're trying to get your 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 business uh steamrolling all the competition and i'm proud of you you're doing a good job thank you i appreciate it well i want to thank you again for your time um for all the information and all the entertainment love your stories and yeah keep keep going i think that what Amride is doing is is really impressive and you're continuing to find the best possible materials to to make these guns work in such a demanding environment. I think it's awesome. Um keep it up. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, anytime you want to come to Hoy, we can uh, do a dive and a hunt. Sounds great. I would love to. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.